The title of this evening's talk is Mindful Awareness and Transformation of Afflictive States of Mind. And we'll be exploring this topic this evening as one aspect of dukkha and also as an aspect of the third domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, citta nupasana. And beginning uh, with this. Pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended a meeting of uh, Dhamma teachers, Dharma teachers and Dhamma teachers, that included teachers from um, many uh, various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was uh, one of the teachers at the meeting and also one of the guests of honor, said that his uh, response uh, to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to say that Realization, liberation, is the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This uh, definition of realization, nibbana, being the complete purity of the mind, the complete purity of the heart, has been described uh, uh, as the mind, as the heart of an arhant. In hearing the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence. Confidence in truly, really believing that this was possible. And in the many times that I have sat with Saida Upandita, and uh, when I've also uh, more recently uh, sat the last summer and early fall with Pawak Saidao, both of these venerable teachers speak in similar ways of the same possibility over and over again. And of course in the suttas, uh, the Buddha also speaks of freedom in a similar way. As our own confidence grows and as it deepens, we too begin to know that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here we are. You all making physical and mental effort in the service of awakening, in the service of liberation, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Mm -hmm. 
here in retreat and in your life outside of retreat, you come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and others decrease. And you begin to find that at least to some degree, you've let go of what's unwholesome. You've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to yourself, and what's harmful to others. We begin to find that the wholesome states of mind are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes a deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now. It grows. It grows along with confidence in relationship to maybe our deepest aspirations. And this is from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus, O meditators. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart, the mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care, to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart the mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing can be quite a great inspiration. Inspiring feelings of self-confidence in us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there have been uh, times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself and in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But when I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it was because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. 
And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teaching, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and blossomed and grown. One of my uh, Burmese teachers, Pawak Sayadaw, says that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. That this is what the Buddha taught. Once in a practice interview with him, I went in and said, this is just too difficult. It's too hard. And he responded to me with... uh, great kindness in his eyes and uh, some light laughter and he simply said, no it isn't. (laughs) And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll explore a few of the difficult or afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's uh, definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through all the six sense doors with what we can call bare awareness. With just bare awareness, providing the very immediate and direct access to these experiences, just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and maybe often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena is almost immediately colored or modified by various mental factors, various mental states of mind. So for example, we go to the marketplace the marketplace of the lunch food display, the marketplace of where to do walking meditation of this particular hour, or which shirt to put on today. Where I live in a Taos, about an hour and a half from here, Taos is a place uh, where many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace. Great beauty abounds there, both uh, in the shops and all around, uh, outside. When I first moved to Taos quite some years ago, I went through a a period of practice uh, where I would very purposefully walk down the street uh, in Taos, looking into the shop windows, and watch my mind and my body. Awareness of seeing, 
just seeing forms, colors, bare attention, we could say. And then I would notice the coloration in the mind of wanting, kind of leaning into, and even sometimes strong desire of seeming need, the must-have mind. Thank goodness I didn't have enough money to follow that up. (laughs) So greed coloring a moment's experience of seeing. And I kept doing this over and over, over a period of months, a couple of months, a few months, until the greed subsided. And then just seeing, just seeing colors, shapes, forms, and with a great appreciation for all of this beauty that was made by human beings. But the must-have mind wasn't there anymore at least most of the time, wasn't there anymore. A really good practice in the midst of the marketplace, any marketplace. To sustain and deepen uh, with our practice, to really see things just as they are. Two of the most essential qualities of heart, essential qualities of mind, that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So for instance, if another person notices that I'm uh, feeling or maybe even expressing some form of aversion or greed, it doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states. Bringing mindfulness right into the greed or the fear or the anger. And as you know, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without judgment, you don't project a different image, either to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Takar who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who has been a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath 
I hope, she says. Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I by my aversions? And of course, if we think they're mine, we're more driven by them. It's as though all of us have uh, skeletons in the closet. And in fact, the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of uh, liberation from his own experience of suffering, he wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from an idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger or fear or resistance or judgments or doubts or sadness, grief, longings, strong desires, attachments, confusions, pains, etc. From our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes experiences. And some of these we may have seen and met with an open heart, an open mind, and mindfully investigated. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is there, whatever's present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet, when they appear. And it's important to remember the when they appear. It's not about dredging up or digging up afflictive states of mind. Maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find really true ease, a true happiness, without ever letting out the skeletons. And that's just fine for them. But uh, I've actually never met anyone like this. Maybe you have, I don't know. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll just continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy, but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe what we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable or buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly for a long time. And in light of this uh, Stephen Mitchell had something to say about this uh, in his version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain. 
and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us a very powerful tool, this tool of mindfulness. This tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence. To be able to see clearly and to be able to go home. Our Vipassana practice, along with the practices of metta, compassion and concentration, Give us the tools to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind, the heart of kindness, patience, acceptance, and compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to others. This is really such an amazing process, learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached, to see just what's right here, right now, and begin to realize that it doesn't have to control us. We notice. We note this is how it is in this present moment. The breath, the body, mental state, The various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this, in this moment. With this tool of mindfulness, grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility to realize that anger, irritation, doubt, fear, judgment, worry, grief, sadness, disappointment, strong desire, have no more control over us. The reactive, habitual need to maybe analyze it over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of it, or trying to fix it, or ignoring, or the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity that may even have a kind of cavalier tone to it regarding difficult states of mind the, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude. We begin to realize that none of this serves us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns themselves with the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing or seeing through is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of 
connecting and with a non-judgmental knowing. Knowing this is how it is. This is just how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms, so to say, with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. We can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 or 20 years ago or just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that uh, comes from the time of the Buddha. Rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. Bhante Gunaratana in his book Mindfulness in Plain English says this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem? Great. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in and investigate. And of course, as you well know by now, it's not a linear process. As we continue to strengthen and deepen mindful awareness and concentration and continue cultivating the patient heart of kindness and compassion, it's this whole seamless circle of our practice that allows for the clearest depth of truth to be seen and known. As we practice here in retreat and ongoing through the years of our practice, we see more clearly and become more and more familiar with the process. We sit quietly and watch ourselves, watch the mind, watch the body. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really, the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. To change, they must come to the surface, be accepted, clearly seen, and investigated. And, as you know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience, and the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves in this process of opening to, 
seeing clearly and letting go. This process of relinquishing, relinquishing our conditioned habitual patterns of suffering, relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj says this, Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch, observe, inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. In the Buddha's first Dharma discourse, he said something that I know you've all heard many, many times. I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. I'd like to take a bit of a further look um, at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions or difficult states of mind. The suffering that is inherent in ignoring, excuse me, The suffering that is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything is contingent, we could say, and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinite, infinity of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, judgment, doubt, desires, attachments, sadness, etc., And yet, so often we believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly in place, singular and permanent. Taking our experience and things to be separate, solid happenings, which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and possibly also for others. We grasp onto the past and we project into the future and often solidifying both in our mind. And yet, life just keeps flowing along. But there's a good news too. An amazing thing about suffering is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute, as the Buddha so very clearly tells us in his teachings of the Four Noble Truths. 
here in northern New Mexico, and I know Taos the best uh, of this area, uh, so I'll speak of it in relationship to Taos. In the starting about midsummer and through early fall, which is our rainy season, our monsoon season, we call it, in the big open sky, like here, and as it is also in Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing. Sometimes even double rainbows. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right, and then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, all of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and in and of themselves empty. And it's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with our more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states of mind, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything we try to hold on to, anything we cling to, from material objects to the various permutations of the states of hope and fear, will cause us some degree of suffering. The other side of the same coin, of course, being pushing away or avoiding or resisting. Our practice is about present moment awareness. Really, truly being in the present. This present moment and this present moment and this present moment. Just as it is right now, right now, right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different. That's what causes suffering. That's what causes us to suffer. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment. And on it goes, on and on. Take a close look as you are. Take even a closer look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, 
or avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, from something that we ignore. We have this (laughs) saying in English, ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Well, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance. And bliss is bliss. <laughs> With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent states of suffering. They're not our true nature. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So going on now with exploring a few hues of the rainbow of emotional states, beginning with fear. In our practice and in our life outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of maybe doubt or anxiety or worry or resistance. mind stories such as I won't attend to I won't open to I don't want to or maybe feeling like I just can't be with this experience this unfamiliar new or strong emotional state or this pain in the body or even maybe this pleasurable experience I can't be with this moment of life maybe feeling frozen or feeling caught Fear from this perspective can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations or to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it. This, it's his fault or it's because she or it's because they, it's their fault. And this fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment self-blaming, self-doubt, maybe feelings of unworthiness or not being good enough or just not being enough, not doing it right or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, maybe not being right, maybe not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is based in fear. And maybe also the other side of the coin, hope. I'd like to offer you uh, another view of perfection other than maybe what your conditioned, idealized concept of perfection might be. And this is from uh, the Taoist master Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold. Therefore the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in identifying with 
a mind state of judgment or doubt or blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others, which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if when we've taken a peek, it might not have been so easy. Years ago, one of my uh, Dhamma teachers told me when I came in for a practice interview and fearfully uh, reported the experience of fear, he said, fear is just fear. And when I first heard this, uh, my inward response, I didn't say it out loud, but my inward response was, well, that's easy for you to say. (laughs) Obviously, uh, a taste of irritation and resistance in this uh, inner response. But actually, over time, I began to see that, in fact, fear is just fear. As we gently open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness based in kindness towards ourselves. We begin to be able to meet, to receive fear, to come close to it, to look it in the eye and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it and not be so shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility in our practice. As we get stronger, as our heart gets stronger and our mindfulness muscle develops, so to say, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept that it is, and know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, not me, not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in a moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many other conditions, some of which we know and many of which we don't know and will never know. It may be a moment of a very intense experience But from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me, not mine. It's not that the energy of fear will never happen again, but we learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, to lose the fear of fear itself, and to begin to see it clearly, to see through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. And Wendell Berry, the poet, says it this way. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. 
What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teaching offers us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how most of us have been conditioned, patterned. And this is a a short uh, teaching written by M. Scott Mamaday, Native American writer. It's called The Fear of Botali. Botali rode among his enemies once, twice, three, and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear, so it seemed. But afterwards, he said, certainly I was afraid. I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult emotional energies. They just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks or deadens our sensitivities. And it keeps the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice of ours about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. There can often be quite a bit of restlessness in the body and in the mind, making it difficult and maybe at times seemingly impossible to become focused and mindful of our experience in the present moment. To practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. The intimacy of connection based in kindness, mindfulness, and a focused attention that Sayadaw and I have spoken about many times during this retreat. This intimacy being in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. So it's important to learn to work with these difficult, afflictive states of mind, states of body, when that's what's present in the rainbow of our experience. So now taking a look at anger. And as Sayadaw mentioned uh, sometime last week, in the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. 
we can't see clearly. Anger is a very powerful, strong energy. And so from this perspective, it can be quite seductive. I once knew someone whose uh, energy was fueled primarily by anger. And she was very attached and very identified with her anger and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt uh, strong and powerful in the anger. But unfortunately she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and then feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger and move away. She was a very lonely person and yet so identified in herself as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the what she felt was the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels restless and driven Nothing satisfying. Sleep might be difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's as though a line's been drawn that isn't to be passed. With each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. And something that's both, I think, amazing and simple and difficult to see is that anger, rage, hate develop from a momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any of the afflictive mind states depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our attention, our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other difficult or emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many different components. Thoughts, stories spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone. 
and various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger or fear or greed or sadness or disappointment, expectation, attachment, as soon as you see the stories that are spinning any of these mind states out, it's very helpful to let them go. Let them just drop away. Give them what I like to call no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger or any of the other states of mind. They're also feeding the anger. And I'm going to just use anger ongoing as the example here. They're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations in the body feeling the emotion directly and in itself without the story what are you feeling maybe heat tightness pressure heaviness contraction vibration where is it and very important how is it changing notice the mind Meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. So, for instance, is there resistance? More contraction? Really give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Know it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in the body? Take a look. Every experience that occurs within our body-mind continuum is worthy of mindful attention. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. You might even walk just a little bit faster than you usually do with very slow walking meditation. Bring your attention directly into the body with walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside, the expanse of the hills and the desert landscape, the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, rabbits, insects, lizards, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, in the body. In those moments of a connected present moment mindfulness, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing. Really beyond compare. 
in a quietly wonderful way. And some words from Nisargadatta Maharaj, the great Indian teacher. His teaching was always in dialogue with students. The student asks, what is the real cause of suffering? Nisargadatta responds, self-identification with the limited. Sensations, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, and that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. As, again, the poet Wendell Berry so eloquently expresses in this poem he calls the peace of wild things. When despair in the world grows in me and I awake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, that energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost, the energy isn't lost in the purification and the understanding or the wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or maybe predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, maybe such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear non non-self-absorbed mindful attention, non-self-absorbed mindful attention, based in the heart of kindness. Therein lies the possibility of the transformation of strong, of the strong energies of fear, anger, clinging, sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom our visions obscured, when our mind is clouded, when we're caught in the 
energy of greed and, and attachment, we're, as the saying goes, blinded by desire. And a very blatant uh, example of this, uh, of greed, uh, clearly being the root of our current uh, worldwide economic crisis with the effects of people blindly acting out of uh, enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. And I think that there's actually also some misunderstanding or um, mis- misunderstanding basically in interpreting the Buddhist teachings that all desire is a bad thing. Desire is a very natural human experience. It's what got you here on retreat, for instance. There are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. And there's the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires that we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need in order to uh, be contented. In order to really be at ease in our life. Or the thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that in fact it can't. In fact, that it won't. In light of this, I'd like to... uh, share a prayer, uh, uh, a personal practice, I was told, that was uh, a personal practice of uh, Mother Teresa, the person who gave me this uh, uh, seemed to know that this was a a part of her practice. And uh, just to preface saying that uh, this is a practice of someone who many people thought was a saint, or many people think was a saint an honest saint after you hear this so I'm going to read it just as it was uh, given to me she uh, it starts out deliver me O Jesus we could say deliver me O Dhamma <laughs> from the desire of being loved from the desire of being extolled from the desire of being honored from the desire of being praised from the desire of being preferred from the desire of being consulted from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being respected. Very soon after I was given this uh, practice, a prayer of hers, I got a phone call from a friend and I said, oh, I have to read you something. And I read it to this person over the telephone and his response was, oh my gosh, have I ever got a lot to do? (laughs) And uh, yes, we have a lot to do. (laughs) But I find it quite inspiring actually. We can become quite attached, quite dependent on getting and then trying to keep certain objects of our desire. And maybe expending an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to this or that. Or to get something or get something back. 
trying to keep something or keep something from changing or trying to recreate a changing object, a changing experience. And of course, even here in retreat, this can happen, which you may have experienced. Maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day or maybe that you even had uh, at the last retreat you sat a year ago. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire that is the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself every once in a while. How driven am I by my desires? A question I already mentioned earlier in the talk. So a simple, quite mundane example, personal example. Some years ago, I was at a retreat center uh, here in New Mexico that has some of the most beautiful flower gardens. And I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a sweet smell. So I followed my nose to uh, where the smell was coming from, a particular flower. And I got down close to the flower and really took in the smell. Very present. Aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something. Do something else. But I really wanted to just stay there and continue experiencing that sweet smell. So, with that next moment of clinging and not of being willing to let go and to just simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was completely gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and an irritation in the mind. I got up and I walked away to uh, do whatever I was that I needed to do next, but there was still a clinging, a clinging to that sweet smell. Even though it was gone from the field of my experience, I was attached to the memory of it wanting it back. In fact, even planning when I could get back to that garden and imagining uh, how nice it would be later on when I was back there. What just a moment ago was simply a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant, but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. And it happens so quickly, as some of you certainly know. As we begin to see and know attachment and clinging, we find that we're uh, experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, that term burning desire. For many people, I think there's often uh, some confusion, a delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. And I think it's even sometimes confused with love. Until we begin to see it and know it clearly. What is ease, happiness, really? 
it's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. And even more important, a moment of release from the stress of attachment. Liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he went on through all of the six sense doors this way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred. Jealousy. Fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, I found a recipe. And at risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and probably cook up occasionally, I'd like to share this one with you. It's called a recipe for unhappiness. (laughs) And the ingredients are one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, a quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of of envy minced for garnish. And this is what you do with this ingredients. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. (laughs) Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. (laughs) In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to what is and to inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. (laughs) Garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. (laughs) And in the uh, same uh, uh, teaching, we could say, but uh, in a different way of offering it, this is from uh, Chinese sage Nan Shin. By not accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. The Buddha offers us another recipe the recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindful attention, an investigation that's grounded in kindness. A strong and clear concentrated mindful attention that meets the experiences of the moment and sees them just as they are. 
we can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up and swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. Seeing their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. With a focused mindfulness, investigation, and clear discernment, the contraction of attachment and identification to difficult emotional states begins to break up. And the wholesome states of mind, the wholesome states of heart, begin to be more accessible and more often the experience of the moment. And one way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is just a very brief passage from a Mahayana Sutra, the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotus, and the white lotus do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that in fact, as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies. The mud banks of passions, we could say. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, which, uh, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people potent aspects of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddhism wisdoms or wholesome qualities of mind, of heart. Afflictive afflictive emotions or cankers, as the Buddha often called them. He quite often used very descriptive language. These cankers being transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, Strong emotional energies are digested, we could say, into wisdom. So looking at just briefly, just looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom. The mind, the heart, reflecting clearly. And it's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clearly discriminating 
mindful awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting or transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion and equanimity, bringing us the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and in our mind. The place of freedom from burning. The end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. And we begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with a poem uh, by Roger Keyes. He calls it Hokusai Says. Hokusai was a a very well-known Japanese poet and his most famous painting, some of you may be aware of, was just a one big wave. And this is the poem. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, everyone, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your, ga- in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look, feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit just for a moment quietly. <clears throat> 